0: Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com ACAST. That's Burrow.com ACAST. Burrow.com ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: I had nothing, including my own being, was in any way in my agency or control. So I started to control food because it was a thing I could control. There was also a large preoccupation in the house around not my my dad had a big value around discipline. So one of the ways discipline was reflected was in your wellness. You 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 definitely he had like a real hang up with people Being overweight because that reflected a lack of discipline. So he was often chiding my mother for not being fit enough you know and as a little kid I internalized messages like oh if you if you eat too much of that you might have your mom's problem so don't do that so there were all sorts of like perfect little fodder for my developing mind to to have the raw material to create an eating disorder um yeah so those are some of the ways it showed up
0: And how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, beautiful souls, control can be loud or it can be quiet. And it can definitely be found at the heart of a traumatic childhood. Parents who expect unhealthy and unattainable standards from their kids, who use unreasonable rules and regulations or who use punishment to control their kids' behaviour, it's all ultimately about keeping control. And this is the environment that Mika grew up in. Mika grew up in a very controlled religious environment. Church was three times a week and from a very small child, she was conditioned to feel a lot of fear and guilt around all of the rules and boundaries that were in place. We don't have to be physically abused in loud ways for it to be trauma. Control as a small child takes away all of our rights. Our right to be seen, heard, and valued. Our right to be loved unconditionally. Mika Stover is now a psychedelic guide and trauma midwife, working with the power of plant medicine to help trauma survivors to go back and rescue that younger self and bring them home. Please join me in hearing Mika's story. Mika, I'm super excited for our chat today. You are a psychedelic guide and integration specialist and a trauma midwife, and I'm keen to find out all about that soon. But you have a very important story to share of growing up with intergenerational and epigenetic trauma. I know your father's side of the family were deeply into the evangelical church. Can you tell me what you know of your dad's childhood?
2: Yeah so my dad was one of eight kids and they grew up very much in like the backwoods of Tennessee and um, kind of in the Appalachian mountain area. My paternal grandmother and grandfather actually met at at what would be called in those days in those parts a revival so this was sort of the kind of thing where they would go and you know people would come and sort of attempt to save souls and gather money and it, you know it's the kind of thing that I I have heard about this all of my life and I still am sort of like, is this a real thing that goes on? But my, so my grandfather was 16 and my grandmother was 14 when they met and they were married shortly thereafter with my grandmother giving birth to her first child when she was 15. So, I mean, I can't even fully wrap my own head around that. Um, having not given birth to my first son until I was 38 years old. I, I can't even fathom. So my dad was third in the lineup. And, you know, they they lived in pretty extreme poverty, like the kind where you don't know if you're going to have food to eat. You don't know if you're going to have clothes to wear. Um, you know, my, my father's father was a severe alcoholic and prone to being abusive and I think there were probably also all sorts of mental complexities going on that certainly in that time in that place of the world were not diagnosed were not talked about if anything they were like shameful secrets that you just took to God and you probably felt like were your punishment for something so you know I have one of One of the biggest components of my own healing has come through and just having profound sense of empathy for my father and his experience, you know, seeing the boy in him who was not loved. um, And I think he worked his hardest to get out of the clutches of scarcity. And he told himself a very logical story. If I can provide for my kids then they'll be safe in ways that I was not. And he wasn't wrong, right? So he, the privilege that he afforded me by us not being in extreme poverty got me support when I needed support. What was still lacking was love. It's very hard to do something that you've not experienced, that you've not really got any exposure to. So, yes, that's a little window into his
0: world tough a tough one (laughs) absolutely and I love that you are able to have that compassion and understanding I mean it takes takes us a while to get to that point but to look back and understand that that person who raised you was struggling big time themselves so Mm -hmm. sometimes they just don't have those things to give us So what was your relationship like with your dad growing up?
2: It was very fraught. He, you know, in, in all honesty, I'm not sure that he wanted to have another child. He had two daughters from a previous marriage that was basically like a high school sweetheart who got pregnant. It was a very dysfunctional relationship that ended, um, And he, he met my mom actually when she, she was working. It's a very, if you're familiar with that show, Mad Men, it's very Mad Men-esque. My mom was working as his secretary and it was like a temporary job for her in between semesters of university And after the first day of being on the job site with him, she called the agency she worked for and said, I'm just not going to go back. This guy is too much of a chauvinist. (laughs) And, but she didn't heed the warning of her own intuition. And they asked her to see through the week. And, you know, I, I think probably knowing the whole of the story as I do now, my dad was probably thinking he was being commanding and powerful and that that would woo her in some way my mother really wanted a child and so I think it was more her wanting me than him and I think ultimately he was looking for in my mother a mother himself and so there was a lot of tension competition jealousy between I didn't feel that I felt more threatened by him but he I think felt jealous of me as a threat to his security of like uh, a maternal
0: presence if you will yeah and so they met and and obviously you were born and (laughs) and how was how did you deal with growing up with your dad
2: (sighs) well You know, my dad, I always, I love Brene Brown. She's one of my favorite thinkers. And one of the first concepts that really attracted me to her, her philosophy, her approach, if you will, is this concept of duality of the both and. And I feel like my dad is so much the both and. Because when I think about the, like the hardest things in my life, (laughs) I think of my dad. When I think about some of the greatest lessons in my life, I think about my dad, which is a strange thing. He was so hard on me. Like, you know, militant is the best word to describe the level of like vigilance and discipline. I mean, we would have to make our beds and have bed checks, make sure there were no wrinkles. I mean, it was like over the top. Things were color coded I mean, it just had to be meticulous, which is a lot when you're a little kid. And, and it wasn't just that that was the standard. It was that if the standard wasn't met, the stakes were very high in terms of consequence and, you know, penance to pay. The other side of my dad was this man who I really saw as having a mysterious sort of command of nature. And a kind of charisma and how he carried himself through life. Like my dad could walk into a room and just light it up. And he, one of the things that he would always say to me is, you never, I never meet a stranger. Like I'm going to befriend whoever I meet. And I think that's part of how he got himself out of scarcity is he just charmed people So that was like admirable, but abstract from my lived in experience. We also had like a really, really lush garden in our backyard when I was a kid, because I grew up on like a little humble farm in Tennessee. And he was very determined to ensure that I understand, I understood the cycles of nature as reflected through that garden. So it was like, we work really hard and then we wait and then the fruits come and so these lessons, I mean, they they show themselves to me all the time in some of my best moments with my kids, in some of the best moments in my work, just thinking about the fundamentals of like discipline, hard work, trust, faith, these things that he taught as filtered through a really different lens than the one that I look through but at the essence level, I feel like the values are pretty consistent, which is kind of remarkable.
0: Yeah. And there's such a, there's such two sides to that personality, isn't there? All of that nature and all of that wanting to always be friends with people. And yet this real control sort of side of having things color coded and just trying to keep control of his environment, I guess, at the same time. And you talk about your dad's family and their involvement in the church. How did that filter through to you? What sort of beliefs from oh, that goodness. did you
2: yeah. I could give you a I could give you a book on that one. We were at the church every time the doors were open, which meant Sunday in the morning, Sunday at night, and Wednesday in the evening. And you know, to not go was really problematic. It was not to be in God's favor, to miss a time. And you needed to be, you know, appearing your best. You needed to be, it didn't matter. We we might fight and scream at one another, the whole car ride there. But when we walked through the door, it was like smiles on, game on, you know. And then the lessons within the church walls are the part that I find The most sort of unsettling, just in hindsight, like thinking about the way in which my husband and I were talking about just about this just the other day, like I was really raised to believe that we as daughters of Eve, all of us women were, we are, we were punished every month through our cycle for being curious. So therefore, we had to experience pain every month, and that pain culminated in childbirth when we really had to suffer and struggle because of what we did in the Garden of Eden. This was the narrative that defined my orientation to being a girl and a woman. I remember very specifically uh, one Sunday in Sunday school, and a little boy in the Sunday school class kissed me on the cheek. I ran like my, my feet were on fire just as fast as I could to the bathroom in the church and was scrubbing my face because I felt like so much fear of contamination and not wanting to, to, to break any of these like really
0: rigid rules yeah wow oh that's a lot isn't it to have to carry (laughs) through your life just even just that whole monthly cycle thing and just oh wow that I mean just framing it like that for for young girls that's that's a lot what did you believe was your value as a a girl or a female in the world out of that
2: wow I mean I don't think, I mean, I I think that I believed as a young girl that I didn't have a lot of value, just quite, quite simply stated, and that even potentially worse, my value was only as deemed by men, you know? Like, so if I was pleasing, if I was acceptable, if I was pretty enough, but not too much to be provoking... If I was smart enough, but not too much to be provoking, if I was all of these things, but just in the right, perfect proportion to warrant acceptance and non-threat, then I was safe, safe, not valuable.
0: Yeah, wow. It's like impossible almost, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like It's impossible to... Oh, to just live in the world to be yourself in any way shape or form when there's so many boundaries that you've got to stay within mm-hmm. what was your relationship like with your mom
2: so that's an interesting one I mean I think when you're a little kid and you have one parental figure like like my father you I mean I think maybe it's human nature you need a good guy and a bad guy So it was really easy as a little kid to see my dad as the bad guy, because he was often felt scary and unpredictable, which meant I needed my mom really, really badly to be the good guy, so to speak. And by contrast to him, she was. That being said, she was very much controlled by him. And I would say, in hindsight, brainwashed by him. So you know, in a lot of ways, I was like her, her only friend. She wasn't really allowed to have a lot of other relationships. She was allowed to be, you know, friendly at church that was encouraged, but not outside of that space and place. Um, so, you know, as a girl, I sort of felt like her tag along, um, you know, and, and, My dad would like go off on fishing trips on the weekend. We would eat the fish that he would catch. This is another way he was like really teaching us about working with the land. My mom and I would go shopping, which I think was often referred to as a kind of retail therapy. And then on the way home, I can remember actually doing drive-bys in our car to see if my dad was home. And if he was home already from his trip, we would hide our purchases under the seats because we, we didn't want him to see that we'd spent too much money. Well, I didn't understand any of this. I was like five or six. I just knew that that was the drill and that was how it went down. You know, and I think as I matured, that sort of enmeshment, I think would be a, a good technical term for it, that I had with my mother, morphed from like, you know, little girl mommy sidekicks to me becoming like her confidant And then over time, like her therapist of sorts. So, yeah, there was not a lot. And with me being the only biological child between them, there was just a strong loyalty bind of being tugged back and forth between the two of them.
0: Yeah. Wow. There's so much control, isn't there, uh, around (laughs) you as a child and around your mom as well um Mm -hmm. and so what did this start to how did this start to impact you as you were growing up I mean what on a daily basis what impact was it having I
2: mean I think the earliest like indications of things being not quite right started early like around five or six years old I I remember this very, very viscerally. I became very OCD about washing my hands constantly, maniacally washing my hands. And I think some of this stemmed from everything had to be so meticulous all the time. I was terrified for it not to be. And there was again, that evangelical backdrop where like, you don't want to be dirty. You don't want to be sinful. You don't want to be contaminated in any way. So I just, I took it, all the way. They, my little knuckles would be bloody from just being so chapped from washing them. Um, and then I think there was another instance, several years later, I was probably that, that the hand washing was around five. I'd say the next one happened around eight where suddenly I just had like this intense pain in my neck. I remember feeling it like, you know, and they were doing all these tests, trying to figure out what was what going on. I had to wear one of those little neck braces. Like, you know, if you've been in a car accident, they never really figured out what was wrong. I mean, now knowing what I do about trauma, I, I think it was just like my body's way of screaming for help, of the pain and the stress and the pressure that my little, little seven, eight-year-old system was under. But the signs were just missed because they were so preoccupied and encumbered themselves. And then by the time I was like 12 or 13, I was already starting to develop a pretty serious eating disorder, which you've used the word control a couple of times. I mean, at the root of that was two two sort of fundamental things. One, control. I had nothing including my own being, was in any way in my agency or control. So I started to control food because it was a thing I could control. There was also a large preoccupation in the house around not... My my dad had a big value around discipline. So one of the ways discipline was reflected was in your wellness. You you definitely... He had like a real hang-up with people being overweight, because that reflected a lack of discipline. So he was often chiding my mother for not being fit enough. You know, and as a little kid, I internalized messages like, oh, if you if you eat too much of that, you might have your mom's problem. So don't do that. So there were all sorts of like, perfect little fodder for my developing mind to to have the raw material to create an eating disorder. Um, yeah. So those are some of the ways it showed up. Wow.
0: Yeah. That's, it's extreme, isn't it? And do you think that your dad was suffering from some sort of mental illnesses that weren't diagnosed?
2: <sighs> I do. I definitely do. I mean, I for certainly he had complex trauma um, that was never He, I mean, we, I remember a couple of times trying to see a therapist and he just could not handle it. Uh, I I mean, we maybe went twice to like a family therapist. And I think one of the times he actually just walked out of the room and said, I'm not going to do this. This is not going to happen. Um, But apart from like specifically like mental illnesses, I mean, I've often wondered if my dad is on the spectrum in some capacity. I've often wondered about bipolar, Um, you know, and, and without properly assessing, it's hard to know because trauma can look like so many of these other things, can activate so many of these other things. So it's sort of like It's one of those conundrums where I'll never really know exactly what is there. But what's very clear is that the unresolved trauma, well, what became very clear to me is that whatever epigenetic markers around unresolved trauma that I had agency at this point in my life to re-script, rewrite, that that was going to stop with me. At what age did you say that was? Well, when I got to that point goodness that took me a long time it wasn't really until I got to the it wasn't until my children were born actually that I realized oh my god there's a lot still buried um because up to that point I just learned to manage it all really well but what's manageable in the absence of children can become much harder to manage when you have these little tiny
0: pulsing beings
2: that need
0: everything absolutely it's interesting I think how most people seem to be able to get away with it until they have kids and then Mm -hmm. then it just hits you in the face doesn't it it's like Mm -hmm. you can't you, you just can't ignore it anymore so by the time you're what 14 you you've really got OCD, you've got an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess you're just sitting in this complete powerlessness really, aren't you?
2: Yeah, totally powerless. Totally. I mean, I, I think like just ping ponging from complete disassociation and, and being out of my body to like extreme hypervigilance and control and just my spirit like ping-ponging back and forth between those two trying to dodge dodge bullets so to speak because it all felt very unpredictable like sometimes things were okay and good and then they could change on a dime and all of that was so contingent
0: on my dad's mood yeah and did you ever get to a point where you were able to push back at all against your dad
2: yeah, it took a long time <laughs> because he was, he was so scary as a little person. But I think by the time I was a teenager, uh, probably like on the, so I had a pretty full on like break because of the eating disorder. I, I I ended up sort of passing out the wheel of the car. I had a terrible car accident. All sort of happened because of, being malnourished like I just I wasn't eating I was living on like 200 calories a day for a very long time and that's not very sustainable right so when I came out of that experience you know they they took me to like a rehab center like something's wrong fix her and that was a, that was definitely a turning point. And I remember working with a therapist at that point in time. And I remember telling her sort of the things that went on at home. And she was like, do you know that this stuff that you're telling me is not normal and that you have permission to say you can't do this to me? And That was the craziest, most novel thought that I'd ever heard because I didn't because he told me my whole life. I was his, I was his, I belonged to him. Right. So I thought to myself, and at this point I was probably about 17 because I wasn't, I know that I was because I wasn't technically 18 and an adult to sort of speak for myself. But she said to me, If he threatens you, again, at the house, I don't care what time of day it is. I want you to call this number. This is my after hours emergency number. So within like weeks of that conversation, it happened. And I said to him, I'm going to call. You can't do this to me anymore. And I called her and she made him get on the phone with her. And it was such a surreal experience. Like looking back at that moment through the lenses that I have now, wow, just I can see how, the, how everything sort of shifted in that moment. I remember him sort of skulking to his room after what was technically, I think, a reprimand from the therapist saying, if you continue to threaten, I will call the police. It's not acceptable. So what I actually learned in that moment was how to set a boundary, that you get to set a boundary. I had no no education
0: in that prior to that moment. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And I've heard these stories where you can have this toxic parent doing this your whole life, and it just takes one incident to really help Mm -hmm. them to step back out of that because Mm -hmm. it just becomes what everybody is doing you're expecting to be treated that way he's expecting to treat you that way and it just becomes what you all do It's um, -hmm. yeah it's it's interesting that he sculpted off to his room it kind of makes me feel like oh my gosh you know I know how how long and how many years these things go on for and just all you need is one person to tell that person what you're doing is not acceptable. Right. And so, did you did you leave home at some point soon after? Yes,
2: very shortly after that, I left. I left home, and I really never went back. You know, and and I didn't just leave home. I went from rural Tennessee to China. To, as I mean, I went started college, I went and studied Asian philosophies, which was just a total shock and awe for my like, evangelical family in Tennessee. And, you know, it, it was so incredibly healing to escape. That's what it felt like, 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 oh, my God, what, what did I just get out of and where am I now and this there's this whole other world and they think so differently and I don't even have to believe any of those things anymore um so you know yes on some levels I totally ran away from my problems and I still had to come back and deal with them but I also think for me for me that. Definitive break and line in the sand was such a critical part of my healing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so you head out into the world, and how did all those beliefs, though? I mean, you're saying that you didn't have to believe them anymore. They must be very deeply ingrained.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, so now for context, I'm 42. And I mean, I'm still on my path. I'm still doing my healing and this stuff still shows up in my work and I'm my own personal healing work. And I'm like, my God, I can't believe that's that's still really in there. You know, And one of the things I say to my clients is like, okay, just to put it bluntly, our shit is always our shit. Whatever is our karmic inheritance that we came into this life to do is what we're here to do. Years ago, one of my first ever, like, best coaches that I worked with sent me this little image, and it was like a little kid going up a spiral staircase, and the quotes on the the image said something along those lines, like, you're always rotating around the same axis, just make sure you're ascending. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think I was working on that stuff then, I'm working on that stuff now. And I, you know, I'm working to be moving towards like completion, if that is what is meant for me in this life so that I don't have to process it all again in the next.
0: Yeah. And it's good to know that somebody like you who's done a lot of work, it's good for people to understand that because I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm going to do this and then I'll be good, you know, and I just think that's not it get pretty down. <laughs> yeah, I think people get pretty low about it, you know, like I should mm-hmm. be I should be better now, but I think it's just a continual you've got to be working on it forever really. Yeah. It's it's not something that magically disappears, especially if you've had really deep trauma. So, I know that when you left home and you had your first experiences with boys, you talk about that scrubbing your face when that little boy kissed you on the, on the face? How, how did that work out for you when you were dating in your first experiences?
2: Horrifically. I mean, just to be real about it, my first sexual experience was terrible. I, you know, I felt like I didn't, I did not, I can say this, this is my truth. I did not feel I had permission to say no, because the way that I'd been raised was that I had to be pleasing and that men were in charge. And that was really the patriarchal model that was handed to me. So, you know, it was a boy, I was dating We had like a friendly thing, but he was, he kind of intimidated me a little bit, but that was familiar because so did my dad. And so it sort of made me think that I liked him because I didn't know any better. And, you know, he, we, we were making out as young teenagers do. And then there was like a pressure for more. And there was a, a strong desire in me to stop. For so many reasons. And I kept saying. I don't feel ready. I don't feel ready. And he just. He didn't stop. And. Yeah. Like a part of me. Felt like. Let's see. What did that girl feel? That girl felt like. That was a moment. That I knew was coming. And I just wanted the band-aid to be ripped off and for it to be over and then to try to fix myself later.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's what it felt like. Like I, I had no agency, so I just wanted it to be over. I tried my best to say no. Wasn't shocked that that wasn't listened to. I think my no was probably meek. So the boy, you know, I, the boy probably didn't know how serious to take it, even though, yes, of course he should have heard that I was saying I wasn't ready. I think it was a mess. The whole thing was a mess. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I feel so emotional when you speak of that because I think so many of us who, who didn't feel any self-worth or self-power, any power at all, you know it's just those moments where you were so powerless to mm-hmm. even to just have what you needed just to put your hand up and say stop mm-hmm. absolutely this is not happening and you just mm-hmm. don't have the power in any way to mm-hmm. um to, to say that and it's just it's heartbreaking isn't it
2: it is it is and it's part of why I feel compelled like to, you know, for years, I carried these things around like deep, deep shame inside me. And now I'll tell, I'll tell this story as many times as I can in the hopes that some girl listening who doesn't feel agency and power can hear me say, you get to say no. And it can be loud and it can be strong and it can be
0: yours. Yeah, I love that and um, yeah, I just think it's so important for young girls to know that and hopefully, hopefully they're getting those messages much more now, but I'm sure many of them are not. yeah 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 so obviously you went from your teen years growing up probably not really thinking too much about the trauma that you were holding or even understanding it was a part of you Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and when did you start to realize that you needed to heal something
2: well I mean clearly when they when the crash in the car happened, there was like a moment of reckoning, like, oh, okay, I've like shut down my body, and I have to learn to eat again, and my body like for, had forgotten how to digest food, so I, it was like this really surreal experience of having to, to, to do all of that, and just re-teach my body like a baby how to eat foods again, um, So I I think that was like at age 17, I knew like there's some serious stuff and I got myself out of crisis or triage or whatever you want to call it. Like I was in eating disorder remission and then I ran away far away to the other side of the world and I forgot about it as best as I could Um, and piled on lots of other crazy beautiful hard experiences that were born out of unresolved trauma underneath and then I came back because my spirit felt called to come back and I think it's because my spirit really is in this life to try to stop these epigenetic markers so my kids don't have to carry them you know so I went to counseling like a good, intelligent, holistic person. I got acupuncture. Like, you know, I tried all the modalities. I landed in Portland, Oregon, which is like a mecca of alternative healing modalities. And then, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it wasn't really until I really thought I had it managed. I did because I didn't have this eat. I mean, I had like the, the the remnants of an eating disorder, but that's very different from not being able to eat. You know, I knew my story. I could intellectually rattle off, you know, what happened to me without feeling a thing. And I think I thought that that was good. You know, like, okay, I don't feel so much. So that's good. Well, <laughs> Then I like got pregnant. I had a very traumatic pregnancy. My child, my firstborn was in the NICU. I felt everything. And I was feeling everything about the possibility of losing him. Everything about the possibility that I'd never even found myself. Like all of these things were colliding inside at once. And I think this is, we haven't gotten to this point yet, but I work now with psychedelics and people with trauma. And I had had, before I moved overseas to China, you know, coming out of the eating disorder, after I kind of came out of the rehabilitation center, you know, as that evangelical girl who'd followed every rule in the book, I kind of thought, screw the rules, I'm going to try some different paths. And I mean, it wasn't like a, wild, raucous party. It was more like a desperate, curious girl hoping that something else could show me a sign. And I had these experiences with with mushrooms, with psilocybin, very limited, like three or four, that were totally transformative, like receiving messages like, you're not the problem. You're not what's broken. You're worthy of love. And I think those things filled me up enough that I like, and other stuff too, that I left, I had this big adventure. But then when I found myself sort of in this weird state of like, I haven't felt this broken since that eating disorder, but now I have a baby. This doesn't make sense. What am I gonna do? I thought to myself, I gotta fix it and I gotta fix it fast. What's the most powerful tool I know? And immediately my mind went to these these psychedelics. And part of that was also informed by the fact that that it was beginning just then beginning to be a conversation in the field of mental health. There were starting to be trials and astounding results that all sort of mirrored my own experience. So I felt more permission, maybe more emboldened to try and that path though also still carrying lots of shame because i never imagined myself as a mother you know of a tiny preemie taking psychedelics that evangelical girl would have hid under the pew
0: yeah wow and when you go back to the first experiences of psychedelics how old were you at that point So
2: I was probably about 18, 19. Okay.
0: So that was a pretty profound experience then at that age.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I felt like that was the first time, and it sounds so crazy, but it was the first time I really felt like, I felt like I was being instructed by something that there's like, there's more than all of this. There's unconditional love, and you're deserving. That was the clear message. And I haven't talked about it, but my maternal grandfather was a very sort of important figure in my life. And he was safe, and he was a man who was safe, and he was very gypsy-like. And so I had like a footnote of unconditional love through him. Though he, he passed away right around the same time I had that accident. And I think those two things are not unrelated, but I I feel like the experience that I had of his love is what I felt in the psychedelic, those initial psychedelic experiences. I felt like, Oh, there's love here. I'm lovable.
0: I'm forgivable. I'm okay. I can be okay. Yeah. And when you mentioned you didn't think those two things were unrelated What do you, what do you believe about that? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I mean, I really feel like, I feel like he was like my first shaman, you know, and I think he left to wake people up. Like he was very healthy guy. He was not sick. He was like fit as a fiddle and he had two daughters in very toxic relationships not acknowledging it, with grandkids who he adored paying, paying the price of these relationships. And he was like the thing that, the glue, you know, and like in so many ways this like perfect male figure. He was fun but safe, you know, like the antithesis of my dad. And I think like when he left, everything changed. So it was an invitation to wake up. Yeah, you know, like, that wreck happened within weeks of his passing. And I remember thinking two things when I sort of came into consciousness after the car was like upside down, like, I thought of him. And I thought, did I die? Am I going to see him now? No, he's not here. I'm alive. And he wants me to change things.
0: That's a, a great realisation to have at that age, I think, isn't mm-hmm. it, to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so these days you're helping people who are looking to heal deep intergenerational and epigenetic trauma. Mm-hmm. Can you explain for people that don't know what the term epigenetics means?
2: Sure. Sure. So this is like a rich word, and it, as with any rich word, it's more of a concept than a word itself, so it's a little bit hard to simply distill, but basically, you know, when we think about epigenetics, let's start by thinking about genetics. So genetics is referring to what are the physical traits like eye color, hair color, skin tone, all of these things that we inherit from our maternal and paternal sides, and we carry forward through the generational line. We talk about epigenetics. I heard it described once at a conference, like epigenetics is like the film or the veil, if you will, that lays on top of the genetic material. So it's also, they are also markers, but for more um, abstract emotional Things As opposed to concrete physical traits, we're talking about the markers for like depression, addiction, um, all of these sort of things that are rooted in our genetic makeup somewhere. And if we look through a family system, very rarely will we not see that it
0: travels over time. Yeah. And... Can you explain what psychedelics are and what they do? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, there's a whole lot of them, and I'm not an expert on all of them. Um, But in this general world of psychedelic therapy, a lot of times people will refer to them as entheogens. And that could be anything from psilocybin, which is in everyday talk, magical mushrooms. People refer to them as that's one of the tools that I work with to MDMA, which is like, um, you know, also got a bad rap as being like the party, party drug, pure MDMA used in like a clinical setting is a very different thing. And I think can be, it's also a medicine that I work with. It can be very, very helpful for people who don't have a strong sense of internalized safety because it can help someone to sit with the hardest things and find safety still. So those are the two that I work with the most, but then there's, there's a full gambit. So you, ketamine is another one. There's ayahuasca, there's, um, peyote. There's so many, I could go on and on and they all sort of have their own kind of characteristics, personalities. There's lots of great information. I mean, now that the results, are really starting to pour forward from, uh, you know, really demonstrating the efficacy of the work. There's more and more research money going in the direction to really help people to identify, okay, if you're struggling with X, which of these magical tools might be the best one for you? So I, I think it excites me to think that in the next, you know, three to 10 years, we're going to be able to say, if someone comes to us, I'm really struggling with this. Oh, okay, well, this would be the best of these tools for you to work with. And here's why. And here's some research
0: to back that up. Yeah. And you call yourself a trauma midwife. What does that mean?
2: Yeah. So I'll explain what that means to me. I mean, ultimately... It's like like I think about this whole work of healing as like a giant rebirthing process. Like we are, we are working to rebirth and then reparent ourselves out of the pain stories, out of the trauma, and into the present. And not unlike a woman trying to birth a baby, it's really like a metaphysical thing that's going on and has been for all of antiquity between a woman and that baby spirit, And they've been doing it by themselves for for all of time. But it really helps to have someone there to sit with you because there's going to be parts during that laboring process where the pain really hurts, where it gets scary, where you're not sure, like the flood of all of the stuff can obstruct your intuition, if you will. And that's where I think like, you know, and for women who've had children, I think this may be a more apt metaphor, but the midwife is so helpful because she can just sort of like help you to move that energy to come to the other side of that contraction. That is really all that I'm doing in the medicine space is like the medicine and the spirit are doing a thing and I'm there to support those two and getting to the other side. So that when the person walks out of that space, they have rebirthed an aspect of themselves from pain into something else—purpose, you know,
0: healing, peace, whatever that may be. I love that. Sounds so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, when you actually take the psychedelics, what mm-hmm. what are they actually doing to your brain?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So different ones work in slightly different ways, but specifically, like, let's talk a little bit about, um, MDMA because this one is, there's lots of, you know, discrepancy in the psychedelic world. Is this really a plant medicine? Can we call it an entheogen? Because it's not a plant technically, it's, it's a, you know, a chemical compound. Um, but it, it has psychedelic effects. So let me get not geek out too much on it. So specifically, MDMA works with the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that gets really kind of calcified and conditioned to go to fight or flight and or shut down um, when there's trauma, right? So part of the reason that MDMA can be so effective is that it, it like talks to the amygdala. So what can happen in the psychedelic space, let's say you've got someone who has a very traumatic experience, like the one I was describing earlier, of being raped. So if you try to talk to a person or get them to talk about it in a regular talk therapy session, as many therapists had done for me over the years of my life, I could recount the story, I could get close to some feelings, but I couldn't get to that girl in that car, where that happened because my amygdala literally wouldn't allow it. It was too foreboding to go back into that terror chamber. Now, with the MDMA online and in my body, my amygdala could tolerate going back to that car. I didn't love it, but I understood that I could stay safe in the now and that Actually, in fact, I could go get her, and I could bring her home with me and that that's amazing, so that's just one example of how you know these these tools can really work you know they they've that they, to talk about psilocybin just a little bit, like they've done brain scans where you can see neural elasticity expanding in the scans of people's brains when they're in this state because ultimately I mean most people who are familiar with psychedelics are familiar with Michael Pollan who wrote a very famous book called how to change your mind what he's talking about is about changing the neural pathways that get hardwired over time and with trauma in our mind it's very hard to do and the psychedelics with their capacity to enhance elasticity, neuroplasticity, if you will, make that so much more readily accessible.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Is it just tiny amounts of these? Is it microdosing? Well, it can be microdosing. It can be
2: macrodosing. My my approach tends to be on the conservative side, especially because I work with people with, with trauma. You know, I think I always tell clients we can add more, but we can't peel it back. (laughs) So I, you are coming here to remember how to feel safe in your body. The last thing I want to have happen is an experience so intense that you feel like you're reliving the fear in a way that's re-traumatizing as opposed to restorative. So, you know, different, if you talk to different practitioners, they're going to have very different approaches. I think it's highly subjective and should be highly considered within the context of a person's
0: story and what they're working to heal. Yeah. So it's obviously done in a very safe environment. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I mean one of the things that that we talk about a lot in this this world and like through my sort of training process was set and setting. What's the appropriate uh, the appropriate set and setting in which a soul can actually surrender and feel safe and and have the opening to allow these things to come through, right? And so the medicine is a catalyst for that. But that, but it's also, it's, I say to people too, it's like, it's magic and it's not like it's magic. What's possible in the sense that it, it can blow your mind because you felt stuck for so long and then you're not, but it's also, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of science and there's a lot of process that goes into setting that set and setting appropriately to create a container that, that yields those optimal results.
0: Yeah. And who are you actually able to work with? Because I mean, are you doing this just in in a practice or are you doing it worldwide? Mm -hmm. I know that in lots of parts of the world, people wouldn't have access to it.
2: Well, you know, we, um, we live in a part of the world where it is totally viewed, specifically the psilocybin work as like an ancient indigenous plant medicine. There's no, there's no sense of wrongness about this as a medicinal tool for healing. In fact, the opposite, there's an ancient lineage and history of that happening here. I didn't even fully understand that or know that this was going to be my path when we moved here, but it it feels very, just like a little cocoon for me now to be doing this work here. I had a coaching practice for a long time before this became kind of the the next iteration of my professional path. So a lot of my coaching practice, you know, I often say to people, the coaching work feels like office visits and checkups and the psychedelic ceremonies feel like metaphysical surgery. So we're doing pre-op, post-op and metaphysical surgery, <laughs> if you will. To answer your question, I do a combination of working with individuals. Sometimes I work with with smaller groups. Um, Typically with trauma, I think groups can, small groups can be okay. Too many people can be ineffective. And
0: I also work with couples. Is this just in your local area or is it a worldwide thing?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking so many good clarifying questions. So I host retreats here. So often people will come to me you know, and I really didn't know if that would happen, what was going to happen when COVID happened. But I think, you know, as with great antagonists, they they also catalyze a lot of things. And I think COVID catalyzed a lot of people to recognize they needed to heal. And, you know, I, I was amazed at how many people actually wanted to come and seek refuge away from the noise and the chaos of the rest of their life. And this felt like a safe place to do it. And for that, I feel really grateful. Um, Another thing that if you would have told me a year or two ago that I would ever do any kind of work like this virtually, I would have laughed because, I mean, that's like thinking of, of like helping a woman give birth virtually. But again, COVID really pushed me to learn to work with these tools in all sorts of new ways so there there are with extenuating circumstances and the right set and setting and all these things I do uh, facilitate virtually but I really treat each individual on a case-by-case basis because as like like again I'm going to go to that birth metaphor no two births are ever the same
0: and who do you think are the best candidates for this type of treatment
1: hmm
2: (sighs) <sighs> That's such a good question. I mean, usually people, I think, when they get to the place where they're considering this, it's like they already sort of know. They feel like a, a sense of calling or like an invitation, and it's from their own sort of higher self, if you will. Like when a client comes to me and they say, I don't know. Part of me doesn't really want to do this, but I just can't shake this feeling of being called to this path. I can't carry these burdens anymore. I don't want to. And I my something inside says this is the way. Then I know, okay, there you go. Well, let's let's explore it then. Because it's not a path for the faint of heart. It's hard work and beautiful work, but you really do I think need to feel that sense of call and deep spiritual
0: curiosity. Mm, it all sounds so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love uh, hearing about this. Mm. So you have two gorgeous little boys. Mm-hmm. How are you parenting them mm. differently? What do you really want for those boys that you oh. didn't get?
2: Oh, that's I love this question. So there's so many things, <laughs> but namely, I want them to feel safe and and empowered to be curious and to be crazy wild in their bodies, like no inhibitions. I don't remember a place or point when I had no inhibitions. I watch them every day and their wild, wildness. And I'm both sort of taken aback because it's so foreign but also at the same time revel in the fact that they feel so unencumbered in that. And I love, love, love that. Um, I think the other thing that's really important to me, and it's part of what, why we moved here, you know, we, my husband and I are both, you know, ethnically we are white and we have two white sons and there's this thing of white privilege and what it means to be a a boy inherently born into that construct. And we made a conscious choice that we wanted our kids to not just have an intellectual notion of otherness, but to experience it. They may not like that, that we did that later. I'm sure it will inform them in all sorts of ways. But I think like, it's humanizing. And I've watched it in both of them where they're not at the epicenter of the culture in which we live. And they're learning a kind of resiliency in needing to be bilingual and needing to figure out how to, how does this context work as opposed to how does this context cater to me? Um, So just really instilling in them like that sense of I'm not here to what is it it's not about entitlement it's about again funny full circle back to my dad some of those same values of like discipline and integrity and you know like respecting the natural world and other people um, instead of putting yourself first.
0: Mm, I love all of that that that's all just so amazing and I love I love that you've taken them to this whole different place and they're just so lucky because they've got you as their mum too who is already thinking about all of these things for mm. them but we learn so much from our kids as well oh, don't gosh. we I mean yeah that's that's the other big thing about having kids is how much we actually learn from them totally
2: every day I'm sort of astounded by what they teach me and how they they keep me accountable to being present in the present and paying attention you know um yeah they're great teachers (laughs) yeah absolutely
0: everything you're doing just sounds so amazing. Can you share with us where we can find you and just anything else you'd like us to know about what you're Mm. offering? Mm.
2: Well, I have, so you can find me on Instagram. It's at Micah Sugarfoot and I will share just a little tidbit. So Sugarfoot was the name of my maternal grandfather who I spoke of earlier. That is what he called me. And, um, so that that's like the that's his little remnants in my life now. Just I feel like he's the kind of shaman behind the scenes, if you will. So you can find me on Instagram at Micah Sugarfoot. You can also find me at dot com. That's my coaching landing page, which I've had for a long, long time. And it's actually in the process of renovating itself right now to talk a little bit more directly about the medicine work. So more changes to be soon and coming there, including more specifics about the different offerings. If people are curious about the work specifically, the psychedelic work and what that entails. I mean, if people are curious and they feel the call, I always say, reach out, ask, you're not going to know unless you lean into it. And one thing I will say about this community, meaning the psychedelic community, is there is a kind of, I mean, it's grassroots, it's underground, it's its like there's a strong sense of community, there's a strong sense of like mission and vision. Of course, I'm speaking in, in global terms here and there's outliers, but I think there's a lot of really good people doing amazing work in this world and the good ones are going to share their resources. They're going to share their knowledge and they're going to connect you and point you to things that are going to help you figure out and feel more deeply into this path as a possibility for yourself.
0: Oh, Mika, it all just sounds so amazing what you're doing. Mm. I've really loved hearing your story and Mm where it's taken you and all the possibilities of your work is just so beautiful. Thank you for sharing all of your beauty and all of your light with us today. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, it was such an honor and a pleasure. And I thank you so much for the invitation to share my story and for listening and just for creating a container. You talk about this a lot in the episodes that I've listened to where we just the power of the human story is so critical in deconstructing that sense of alienation and loneliness and despair that can often leave leave people stuck and hurting. So I'm so happy to just be part of sharing in that way. Thank you.
0: Check the show notes for a direct link to all books recommended in this episode. Come and follow me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. Drop a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique. And you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thank you for joining me. I'll catch
1: you next week.